Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. It's episode 420, and you can guess what that means. No, we're not going to be talking about cannabis banking, but we will cover something just as controversial, DeFi. In the first half, Brett King connects with Ajit Tripathi, our key correspondent on all things crypto and DeFi from across the pond, and Donna Parisi, global head of finance at Sherman and Sterling, to paint a picture of the current DeFi landscape. Now, if you had to Google DeFi to figure out that it stands for decentralized finance, Ajit does a great 70-second overview. I got to play executive producer on this segment, and I loved how deep Donna and our host went into the tensions between technology, regions, and regulation. And in the second half, I chat with venture capitalist Sanjeev Kalavar, a partner at OpenView Ventures, as he details a future where banks have full choice and more flexibility in their financial infrastructure. And we also get into a concept that OpenView has pioneered, product-led growth, a simple concept, but frankly, pretty hard to come by in a lot of financial service. This is where the product makes the customer think end user engage deeper and deeper with the products in a way that they both benefit. Hope you really enjoyed this episode. I know I did. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. Uh, today, we're going to dive right into all things crypto, DeFi, and get into the opportunity threat uh, situation. Joining me in the hosting chair is my good friend, Ajit Tripathi, joining us all the way from, I'm, I'm guessing you're still in London, are you, Ajit? Yes, hi, Brett. Uh, great to see you again. London, it's cold, it's frozen, it's dark, yeah, you it's did, wonderful. Yeah, you didn't get Omicron yet, right? Uh, we have, I'm sure, you know, I mean, it's such a... No, but you personally novel. didn't get it, right? Uh, not that I know of. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Hey, um, you know, this is uh, this is an interesting conversation we're going to have today. Um, if you don't know Ajit, he he is our key correspondent on crypto and DeFi um, and CBDCs for Breaking Banks Europe, and he's also obviously uh, been in the the hosting chair on Breaking Banks numerous times with us. But we have joining us also Donna Parisi. She's the um, global head of financial services and fintech at Sherman Sterling. Is did I get that pronunciation right, Donna? That's right, Sherman and Sterling. Sherman and Sterling, very good. So, um, what does a global head of fin financial services and fintech do at Sherman Sterling? So, you know, one of the roles is really relationship coverage for major financial institutions globally. Um, we have a global platform and we cover our clients globally. So, think that the traditional financial players like Credit Suisse, Barclays, Morgan Stanley, Citi, etc. Um, and so I talk to leaders at those financial institutions, see what keeps them up at night, see what opportunities they see, and how Sherman and Sterling as a law firm can help support their efforts. Uh, and clearly, over the past, I would say, five to seven years, a lot of those conversations have been focused on fintech as a disruptor, and more recently, crypto and DeFi and what it means for traditional financial services, um, and as well as the, you know, crypto ecosystem and what's on the horizon. Absolutely. Well, let's jump into DeFi. 
So decentralized finance. Um, now, Arjit, um, you know, Ethereum really, the Ethereum blockchain and the smart contract stuff was the first we heard, uh, you know, sort of blockchain 2.0 was the first we heard about decentralized uh, finance. But, you know, can you give us a little bit of history in terms of when DeFi became a thing and when DeFi apps, uh, you know, first sort of emerged in, in on the Ethereum blockchain? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think you know, uh, I, I I work for Aave. Aave is one of the uh, best known protocols in the DeFi space. Uh, so uh, I think Bitcoin is probably still the first example of you know decentralized finance, except it does some you know very simple things. It's a bearer asset supports supports very very simple applications using a scripting language. Now with Ethereum, you can build far more complex applications. You can essentially create programmable forms of you know money, both fungible and non-fungible assets, which allow you to build complex financial applications for you know trading, borrowing and lending, for you know derivatives and any and you know on top of these things, far more complex applications, right? And DeFi really started in 2017 with MakerDAO, Aave, and some of the other you know, automated market makers coming to market. And uh, it's matured quite a lot uh, in the last four years. And thanks to the remarkable growth of stable coins and sort of a general you know, uh, willingness in the market to sort of take more risk, uh, DeFi has grown quite exponentially over the last uh, two years from almost a billion dollars in total assets to $250 billion in total you know, liquidity. So, so DeFi obviously has gained a lot of attention from you know, policymakers, regulators, financial institutions, and obviously you know, our colleagues in the legal firms uh, around the world. And it's a tremendously exciting space for creating you know, on-chain uh, automated financial and non-financial applications uh, that are fully automated, transparent, and governed by, you know, decentralized global internet-based communities. There you go. That's a good brain dump, budget. I think I, it sounds like you've had to use that explanation before. Uh, I, I do this for a living, right? The tongue. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so. Um, you know, Donna, what are you seeing in terms of the primary DeFi applications that are out there? You know, I've I've worked with a couple of these DeFi organizations. Yield, which is, uh, um, you know, one one of my favorites, uh, actually run by a guy called Jason Corbett, who Ajit, I'm sure you know. Um, but um, you know, what, what are you seeing in terms of DeFi operationally that's sort of out there starting to to get traction? Yeah. So I, you know. I- I think we're going to talk a, a bit today about two themes that emerge. And one is the promise of DeFi and the journey of DeFi, right? Wow. So where we are right now in, in terms of DeFi is, is as Ajit mentioned, it offers the same types of financial services that traditional finance does in terms of um, lending, derivatives, hopefully faster, more efficient settlement. So that's the, the, the promise of DeFi is that we can do everything we're doing right now in traditional finance better, faster, more efficiently, less cost, and with more inclusivity. Um, we're not there yet, right? We're still in the very early stages of the journey of DeFi. Absolutely. So um, uh, I, I want to sort of talk about, um, you know, the 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 aspirational uh, situation, uh, um, you know, in the current reality. but. Um, you know, in terms of DeFi more centrally, is this sort of a, um, you know, is the US, uh, it, 
you know, maybe Arjit, you can answer this. Is the US a, a real player in terms of where DeFi is happening? Or you talked about these global decentralized organizations. Do they tend to be driven from offshore? It, where, where is the DeFi movement geographically based? I think in general, you know, we are seeing the emergence of what we call Web3, uh, which sort of includes DeFi, but is a bigger set of, you know, internet native applications, uh, which are essentially governed by, you know, internet-based communities. So, so these applications tend to be built by developers and contributors from around the world. US has some of the biggest applications, right? So Uniswap and Compound are both uh, have, you know, their teams and founders based in California uh, for the most part. And this, so the US, you know, when, when it comes to technology, you always get great uh, teams and contributions from the US, but DeFi is a far less concentrated or dependent on sort of Silicon Valley than, then, you know, so we see great startups coming from all over the world. India has produced some remarkable startups. Uh, uh, Ave, so, you know, uh, the, this, our CEO is from Finland. So it's actually far more global than the rest of the tech industry. And Donna, is that your observation as well? Where do you put the US in the whole DeFi space? So, you know, my perspective is different from Ajit's, which he, he comes to, he, he answered that question from a technology perspective, right? I answer it from a legal perspective. And the legal landscape in the US is very unclear and muddy when it comes to DeFi. So while you have some tremendous entrepreneurs and some, some tremendous technology coming out of the US in terms of where these organizations tend to locate themselves and the customers that they go after, um, it's not primarily in the U.S. given the regulatory uncertainty. And that leaves the U.S. at risk of being left behind. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, we certainly this is a field, an area which is moving so fast um, that, uh, you know, um, we've seen this with fintech generally in the United States. We saw it with the crypto exchanges. Yes, we've seen the SEC and the Fed move forward with some regulations to adapt to crypto in particular. But if you look at fintech, you know, pretty much every other developed nation, certainly in the G7, um, probably in the G20 now has fintech, a fintech charter. Um, that enables banks to start up, but the US has still avoided that. There's, you know, they forced fintechs to either work on top of a chartered bank or apply for a traditional charter, branches and all. Um, and we've seen N26, uh, um, you know, move out from the US market as a result of that. So it, it, this this is a problem from a legal perspective, Donna, somewhat of. You know, we, we tend to see iteration of regulation in the United States, but the regulations that were really formative in terms of the markets um, and, um, you know, uh, banks, you know, happened in the 20th century, mid 20th century. And crypto and DeFi aren't exactly analogous to, um, you know, those sort of regulations. So how do you reset regulations from a legal perspective? You know, um, like Greenfield, when it comes to something for DeFi, rather than sort of trying to fit a, a square peg in a round hole in terms of the current regulation? Just, you know, how do you see that evolving legally? Well, it's interesting because I'm not so sure and I'm not convinced that we need to start over, right? So, and we can debate some of the statements I'm about to make, but I think arguably the U.S., has a safe and sound banking system that has been resilient through many crises and has investor confidence. Yep, I can see Ajit um, making a face, right? So I, I, I prefaced it saying that we could debate each one of these points that I was about to make. Um, so what do you have? You have investor confidence 
and you've got an economy where that has a, a very um, you know desirable client base. So in some sense, the U.S. hasn't felt the need to innovate or really shake up its traditional financial services system. And so they've been able to take a back seat, see how things develop in other parts of the world, see what works, see what not works, and know that ultimately a lot of these fintech, crypto, DeFi companies will come to the U.S. for two reasons, and that's to raise capital and to access their, their customer base. Um, so... Now, from a regulator perspective, why mess with success, right? So there's not a lot of appetite to be leading the pack when it comes to innovation, certainly from a regulatory perspective. That being said, there is a lot of fear that they don't want to, you know, the U.S. does not want to give up what they view as a market-leading position, right? There's been a lot of talk about what China's up to in this space, CBDCs, the digital yuan, right? That gets everyone in, in the U.S., um, in government, in the financial regulatory circles, nervous, right? We have uh, the dollar that is the reserve currency for now. So how are we going to maintain a safe and sound financial services and banking system, yet be innovative enough that we keep our market-leading position? And that's the, the sort of needle that the regulators are trying to thread right now. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think you're right in terms of attracting investment and the con- the consumer market, but the uncertainty that the you know the startups in this space face is the regulatory uncertainty, you know as well. I think to some extent. So I don't know. I how couldn't that- agree with you more. I, you know, whichever way we go, whether we're going to um, bend and morph the existing regulatory system to fit crypto and DeFi, or if we're going to start over. Um, either way, we absolutely need to have more clarity and certainty. Uh, do you think that this is a case for more globalized regulation around this rather than sort of national regulation, given that decentralized, you know, applications tend to be more global? Ajit, what are you thinking? You were nodding your head there. Uh, 100%, right? So I think at some point, some harmonization of rules is re- is going to be required. Now, obviously, you know, a lot of regulation is 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 essentially political. So, and that uh, means domestic politics in the U.S., uh, but also global, you know, geopolitics. So, for example, China's strategic imperatives for building a central bank digital currency are completely different from what the U.S. might do. I was on a call with the Federal Reserve yesterday and their innovation team, and you know, it's I think there's a recognition that the the payment systems in the US, you know, we're still signing checks and have fed wires. So there is quite a bit of innovation that's required in the US and that's where the FinTech charter comes in. Obviously there is, you know, uh, innovators dilemma across the board in the sense, hey, we have, you know, we have the world's leading capital market, so why change anything? And, and you know, that, that's reasonable. Uh, but at the same time, you know, technology is changing so fast. And if the US doesn't actually, you know, at least create a do no harm type of, you know, regulatory uh, architecture that I think Al Gore and Bill Clinton did uh, when I was a lot younger uh, with with the internet, then I think the U.S. will definitely be left behind in this new Web three space. And uh, but but you're absolutely right. I think a lot of the value of you know internet native money and uh, decentralized finance will come from the truly cross border, you know global Web three transactions and 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 adoption. So yeah, we do need harmonization of rules across at least the U.S. and Europe, if not the rest of the world. Yeah, Donna, I mean, there, there is that point is if you look at tech companies, 
obviously at the tech giants in the US, which, you know, um, nine of the 10 largest companies in the world now are, are tech companies. So, you know, we're, we're reframing regulation around these technology companies. A case in point is GDPR. You know, GDPR, um, you know, American tech companies have to comply with GDPR. And so the US has really lagged in terms of privacy regulations there and found themselves subject to European uh, rules in respect to that. You know, couldn't the same happen in the DeFi space? Certainly, but you can see that happening. I, I'm not optimistic for you know cross-border harmonization of rules um, by consensus, right? right. Uh, so could it happen by being imposed with example, used with right by GDPR? And yes, the, the US have, has imposed their regulation on um, the world through their, like their market reach, yeah. right? So, but I think what, what's the more interesting question? That needs to be answered is what should DeFi regulation look like? And you know, there are some central issues that need to be resolved in that regard. So we have a rule of law because it allows for transparency, for people to understand how a certain set of rules will be applied to property rights, to contract rights, um, and that we have a, a way to address um, things, bad things happening, right? Whether it's fraud, um, et cetera. And what I struggle with with DeFi is how do we apply a rule of law, which I think we would all agree that we need in a decentralized setting, which basically goes down to who is going to be accountable and how are we going to hold them accountable? Because I do think that we need those precepts if DeFi is going to realize its potential. But DeFi by its nature doesn't want to be centralized, right? Doesn't want that centralized control system. But you're right, you know, like, for example, if you lose money out of your DeFi crypto wallet, then, you know, what recourse do you have, you know, from a, a legal perspective? So I get that. Yeah, you know, and so we have different kinds of governance organizations, governance tokens, uh, people voting. So, but, but when a protocol isn't working, needs to be fixed, doesn't meet current regulations, needs to be adapted. Um, you have users, you know, that have vetted or, um, you know, voted for uh, a certain behaviors and those behaviors wind up breaking the rule of law. How do we hold people accountable and how can people have confidence um, that a decentralized system, again, can be counted on and can be recognized that the rules will be enforced. So those are some, you know, really it, it goes down back to the rule of law and first principles as to how we're going to address that in a DeFi context. And I understand that we don't want to do things the same way we've always done it, um, but there are some good reasons why we have rule of law. So what's the middle ground? How do we have decentralization, yet we still have the rule of law and the confidence in participants that the right thing will happen and be done when it comes to their property rights and their money and their contractual obligations. Yeah. I mean, th these, these two worlds don't cleanly fit together clearly, which is why you need a first principles approach to this. But I want to talk a little bit about, um, 
DAOs. Now, DAOs, so for those of you unfamiliar, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. Um, to give you a bit of history behind this, the first DAO was created back in 2016, the 30th of April, on the Ethereum block 1428757. I don't know if that's important. Um, but this is really an autonomous organization, an organization that is a, a corporation in code. Um, maybe, um, you know, Donna, do you have, how would you define a DAO from a legal perspective? And from a legal perspective, they're most often set up as foundations. Um, and from a, a U.S. perspective, um, you know, again, they don't really fit neatly into a box, but we would probably consider them to be something along the lines of a general partnership, which from a legal perspective means that everybody involved has liability, um, which is a problem yeah. for participants. Yeah, no, uh, I agree with that. So, Techni yeah. Technical so, implementation as well? So quite a few, you know, uh, DAOs come in all sorts of legal shapes, as I think Donna indicated. So you have, so you know, you can set up a corporation as a DAO, but a lot of DAOs are purely unincorporated associations or, you know, or, or effectively partnerships. So that creates quite a few issues of liability. Now, Andreessen Horowitz have recently proposed that DAOs should be their own legal primitive. You know, that'll be a very interesting exercise. Uh, let's see how that shapes up. Uh, but, uh, you know, and in the meantime, Wyoming, there is a Wyoming DAO law that essentially recognizes DAOs as, I believe, LLCs. Uh, so, 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 so there is a, quite a bit of work that needs to happen here to assign liabilities. I think that's, you know, uh, and, and rights, which is kind of what Donna is pointing at. But the, in terms of technical implementation, in Ethereum uh, smart contracts allow you allow any any number of participants on the internet to essentially create a, a shared uh, money account, you know, so where they can hold a variety of tokens and assets. So uh, the simplest form of a DAO is essentially a chat group with a shared, you know, multi-sig uh, as an as, with a shared bank account, right, uh, held on the Ethereum blockchain. So, 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 so that allows people to do really, really interesting things like buying uh, a copy of the U.S. Constitution held at Sotheby's that was really, really, you know, popular recently, and then also potentially buying some of the sports teams. So, very exciting times ahead. And you could set up a private equity firm as a DAO. Wow! Yeah, I didn't know about Wyoming offering a LLC primitive for DAOs. It makes a lot of sense. So it, it's it's largely inevitable, isn't it, Donna? We have to have a way to incorporate DAOs legally or recognize them legally. Absolutely right. I mean, it, it, we we need to have that for for DeFi to grow and reach its potential. And it just it really goes back. How is it going to be different from a corporation? How is it going to be different from a partnership? I mean, there's um, you know a, a dispute right now involving Sushi Swap, right, where you have supposedly you know broad governance, but but you know concentrated holders and positions making decisions that. Um, the broader ecosystem doesn't agree with. So these are all things that we've had to deal with before. Uh, and I think what we need to figure out is how DAOs and DeFi is going to be different and better. Um, and maybe we can talk about, you know, what's the promise of it, that it will be more efficient, that it will be more transparent, that Absolutely. it will be more inclusive um, and less expensive, right? And so you, you mentioned the Constitution DAO, right? And there's been a lot written on how that potential transaction was you know, really swallowed by fees. Um, so again, we're, we're in the beginning stages of the DeFi yeah. journey and all of this is going to need to be sorted. 
but, but you know, we know there's going to be more and more automation. I mean, you know, I've, I've recently discussed in my new book, I'm sorry to do the plug, but we talk <laughs> about whether the US government could become a DAO, highly automated, you know, in code. You know, this is obviously over the next 30 years or so. Um, but, um, you know, like just on fiduciary duty, if you've got an algorithm that's running um, the flow of cash and um, the management of assets, then you know what happens when something goes wrong. You don't have a CFO signing off on you know uh, fiduciary uh, um, uh, you know responsibility there. So legally, you know what control do partners have that don't understand how to code that are involved in a DAO, Donna? Yeah. So again, I, I don't have any answers, but I will say that one way uh, that could go is to hold hold the engineers and the coders responsible. Um, and in the past, the CFTC has asked for some source code to be deposited with them, and they have made uh, some gosh. allegations uh, 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 that, that maybe those are responsible parties. And I see Ajit shaking his head, and I'm not saying that that's the right answer, but I'm saying that something me. someone is yeah, going to have yeah. to be held accountable because code is not fallible. Now, when we when I started um, in this area, people always said to me, "You know, are you really scared that you know smart contracts are going to do away with lawyers?" And the answer is no. With human nature, <laughs> there will always be disputes and there will always be interpretive questions. And having a smart contract or having things be automated does not do away with that need at all. Uh, yeah, I think that, the, you know, just to step in here to defend my developer, fellow developer community members. So there is considerable case law in the U.S. from what I've been told that essentially protects software as speech. Right. So, so, so in that question, I think that the difference between who is actually writing the software and who is operating the system built using software will come into play. And you know, in this case, the the challenge is that if you have a decentralized autonomous organization, which is essentially in charge of operating the software, operating the system that's built using the software, then you know, how do you assign liabilities? Which is indeed, a, which is indeed something I think that needs to be solved for. But I think developers are probably not the the best people, given that they're essentially you know, it's software, it's code, it's speech. Well, maybe what we need is we need autonomous regulatory DAOs that can flag when another DAO is misbehaving. <laughs> I think recourse is required, right? For DeFi to scale, uh, identity, reputation, and recourse are three essential elements of how finance works. But you know, we are so early. I mean, in defense of the sure. of the tech industry, this is this is year four of DeFi, and you know, right. Netflix took about twenty years to do streaming. So give us another decade and, you know, let's build a, a safe environment for innovation. I mean, there's one thing to hold a CFO responsible for the financial operations of a corporation, but to hold coders so that coders should understand laws and regulations to a point where they can code to that, uh, you know, I think um, unless we can automate that element of them understanding their regulatory concerns, I, I think it's... Uh, it's a slippery slope. Listen, we've only got a few minutes left, Donna. I, I, what we could do to sort of finish this conversation off, and it's been a fascinating conversation, but, you know, for those corporations that you're advising, um, you know, in the US, um, how should they be thinking about DeFi? Is it a threat? Is it an opportunity? Um, you know, should they be investing heavily in this area? What's your advice to, to organisations looking at the DeFi sp space today? I think overall, it's just a tremendous opportunity. You know, and my advice would be make sure you dig in and you understand, you understand the opportunity 
and you understand sort of the precepts to, to realize that opportunity. And so, you know, again, we, we've talked about this in the past. We'll be talking about it for a while until it's solved. But how do you do AML KYC so that you make sure that your customers are fully vetted, right? How do you have um, efficient settlement? How do you deal with mistakes, right? So I think it's a tremendous opportunity and one that's really going to be realized when we get to interoperability, which we haven't spent a lot of time on. And that's for a whole nother segment. Um, but when we have different DeFi protocols being able to um, speak with each other seamlessly, that's where it will really put traditional finance on their back feet uh, because traditional finance doesn't do that well. So DeFi needs to find something that it does very well and better than traditional methods. And I think interoperability is the way. Let's definitely get into operability another, another time because that's a whole other can of worms. Um, Donna, uh, thank you for joining us. Before we, we finish so off, um, and Ajit, thank you. Uh, but before we, we wrap this up, I will just say, you know, it, uh, one case we put in the new book, Techno-Socialism, is that we could eliminate 70% of US healthcare costs if we make it a DAO. So um, that would be, um, but it would require, um, it would require uh, losing the lobbying groups that influence policy in healthcare, which is a whole different uh, conversation. We will get you a different set of groups, Brett, and exactly. I'm still waiting for the for the NFTs. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Now we're going to publish them, I think, next next uh, next month. But um, Donna, um, where can find where can people find out more about Sherman and Sterling? Um, just go to the go to the web Sherman.com, S-H-E-A-R-M-A-N.com. And are you on Twitter or I know you're on LinkedIn, but you know, how do people I am on Twitter? Um, I am handle? on Twitter as well. Um, honestly, I don't remember off the top of okay. my head. All right. <laughs> okay. And Ajit, you're Chain Yoder at uh, Yes, on yes. Twitter, uh, my 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 Twitter is supremely entertaining. It's Chain yes. Yoder and uh, and and I hang out with a lot of And not at all controversial. Well. Yeah. Uh, no, that's absolutely absolutely not. Right, uh, why, so, why would anyone in crypto be controversial? So, so my producer tells me it's at Donna underscore Parisi. Um, so, um, but you can thank you, Jason. Your Twitter, yeah. Um, so, um, thanks guys for joining us. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back after the break with more breaking banks. The way we move money is changing. We want to send money in real time to the other side of the world. We want everything in one place, integrated, seamless, and on our devices. Embedded, fast, standardized, frictionless, and secure. This is our financial future. Technology is advancing at a blistering pace, and it's causing clients to ask for more from institutions in the capital markets. In this season, we discuss changing stakeholder demands, ESG, banking and payments as a service in the cloud, and how technology innovations such as AI, machine learning, robotic process automation, and more might hold the answer. Is the world's technology up to the challenge? Are we? This show is sponsored by FIS. Find financial futures on your favorite podcasting app. FIS, advancing the way the world pays banks and invests. Hello listeners, I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. 
During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Sanjeev, you have an interesting area of focus for um, you know someone who plays in the financial service and the fintech world and you know software in general is this emphasis on legacy businesses right the slow adopters not the early adopters within this I'm curious why did you you know develop that level of emphasis in the things that you do yeah great question Jason and thank you uh, again for having me here you know, uh, I think it was it happened honestly more by accident than by some scientific choice. I actually started my career uh, as an operator, and specifically, I was uh, GM at a little-known business called Constellation Software, which supplied back-end software to all sorts of legacy industries that you're that you're referencing. And so, as a company, they had you know business units that focus on everything from software for restaurants, to courthouses, to marinas. My favorite is they actually had a business unit focused on software for martial arts dojos. So they had uh, you know, a, a software package that tracked the katas and you know, who was on what belt, the yellow belt or the black belt or the white belt. And, but my specific division was construction software. Uh, so I was managing a business unit focused on software for contractors, uh, plumbing, electrical, HVAC, as well as moving and storage companies. And so, you know, I, I honestly just kind of lucked into it where that was where I started my career building businesses for these industries that everyone had completely ignored. And so when I joined the investing world, naturally I started to invest in the areas that I knew best. Uh, and I knew that these were really big industries that hadn't really adopted software in the past, but they had very poor uh, technology tools available to them. And so that smelled uh, exactly right for a huge opportunity to reinvent those categories. Well, and I don't know if there's anything more legacy than financial services. And it's easy to pick on the banks and say, oh, you know, they're the laggards in adopting technology. But even the cutting edge fintech startups, at some point they have to connect into this legacy architecture, whether it be a payment network or a core somewhere in terms of accounting. How do you see you know, the software industry beginning to evolve within financial services? Yeah, I mean, how much time do you have? <laughs> that's we have 26 that's more great. minutes, go. All right, perfect. Well, that, that's a great question, you know, and uh, I've certainly spent a lot of time and that's a lot of where I spend my time here at OpenView, uh, looking at innovation within financial services. And I think of it, 
you know, on a few different uh, elements. You know, one is simply software tools for the existing financial institutions, right? Whether that's, you talked about the cores, banking software uh, for the, the community banks and regional banks that are out there, whether that be insurance, whether that be, you know, uh, you know, advisors, financial advisors, all sorts of different existing financial institutions have needs for software. There's also, you know, the next generation financial services. And I think of it as a spectrum, right? You know, you've got the Robin Hoods and the Chimes and all of those, you know, pure financial services, all the way to, you know, kind of software for existing financial institutions. And I tend to look at a combination of both, but more on the stuff that sits right in between where, you know, kind of like I mentioned, you know, in the beginning with software for contractors, you know, you can provide both a software system that also becomes a financial uh, service also to those same end customers. And then the last thing I'll add is that between uh, within financial services itself, when you're looking at the category of tools for financial services that exist, the existing infrastructure, I don't think the existing infra infrastructure is going away anytime soon. Although, you know, Chime and Robinhood and all of the, you know, Bitcoin gather a lot of the, the, the headlines out there, uh, I spend a lot of time looking at tools to enable the existing infrastructure. So whether that's software for banks, software for insurance agents, software for financial advisors. Uh, I think there's a ton of opportunity because all of the existing financial systems that exist today uh, actually need to you know, uh, compete with all of the new fintechs that are out there. And they've been probably scared by all of the, uh, or feel threatened by all of the existing, um, all of the headlines, all of the, you know, uh, Silicon Valley is coming for you. And so they're very motivated to buy. Uh, and so that's a, a great that's a great catalyst for investors like me who want to you know enable the existing systems to just operate in a new and digital economy. But they're technical architectures, right? Like there's a couple things you know that make this a challenge where the incumbents need to overcome. You know, I'd say first is architecturally there were not designed to be interoperable, and you know, you in particular focus on you know a growth stage. How do you find those? How do you overcome this, you know, mentality that, whoa, it's hard. Everything is, you know, the equivalent of kind of big iron as opposed to it's a SaaS world, you know, that they live yeah. in. No, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, I'll take the example of core banking, because that's something that is, if, if you're thinking about the, the most antiquated of the antiquated within financial services, yeah. core it's banking a, is the, probably. It's core is frozen. Yeah, exactly. And I've, I've probably spent now, I don't know, two and a half, three years <laughs> looking for a next generation core. And, and you know, I think there's probably folks who've been looking for it uh, for, for even longer than that. At my prior firm, we had actually invested in uh, several layers of banking technology. One was online banking, um, you know, online and mobile banking, which clearly came and went. Uh, I then invested uh, or helped invest in a company that was a, an aggregator layer uh, in the middle between a core bank at, at the primarily at the data aggregation uh, layer, which was a company called MX, uh, which you might have, have come across. And while looking, despite looking for, you know, multiple years for a next generation core, 
I could not actually, I've not actually been able to find one that's successfully ripping out and replacing the old state architecture within these companies. And so actually what I've done more recently, and I don't think I'm sharing anything confidential, is I've been uh, I've been actually looking at alternatives to that. So instead of ripping and replacing your old legacy core, are there APIs or a set of uh, products that can modernize an existing core without having to replace it? And so um, in this case, you know, while I would love to find a next generation core that is out there, there's alternative ways that you know so the surround the core kind of strategy is one that I've been pursuing uh, as an investment candidate. Uh, to be honest, we have not found an investment to to make yet in that world, but I would certainly love to and continue to search for the right uh, for the right company and right partner to to work with there. Yeah, that silver bullet doesn't exist, right? And so they need to find ways to adapt. Now, one of the other things that needs to evolve isn't just you know, the technological layer, but there's the how the per- software is actually purchased and the contract that sits with that. And you spent a lot of time analyzing the SaaS world. I'm wondering if you could overlay what you know and understand of you know kind of the SaaS and the evolution there that you know, for some on the legacy side, that software as a service. How do you see that playing out from the financial service world? Yeah, and this is a great example. I mean, you know, and that's it's a great dovetail with the subject we just talked about, which is instead of investing in a legacy rip and replace core banking product, what if there are APIs that you can invest around the core that can help a bank modernize? And this is exactly a trend that I'm seeing happen in financial services, but also across um, a variety of other industries where the old the old guard or the old method would have been to just go create a new app and build that new app so they can replace uh, an existing you know, solution or workflow. Instead, what I'm finding is that uh, APIs are now taking over uh, and there's a whole new set of you know, application-specific APIs that can be used in a number of different use cases. In banking, as core banking as one example. And there are a lot of benefits of that. And this kind of dovetails with a usage-based playbook that we've talked about, which is that these vendors, not only do they have differentiated products, you know, uh, like an API, which uh, takes in data and takes and you know, moves data around, as opposed to a, a, you know, an application, but they operate on a very different business model. And you know, some people will say that this is almost as big as the transition from on-premise software to, to subscription. This is as big or, or bigger a transition from subscription software to you know, what we call usage-based pricing. Uh, and this is really the concept of enabling a, a technology company to price on a unit level, right? And what and that is that's the unit that is used by the customer. So I know that might sound a bit uh, a bit vague, but you know it's it's really simple. It's the concept of you know if I'm buying a cell phone, I pay for minutes, right? It's you when you buy electricity, you pay for uh, you pay for you know gigawatt hours, uh, you pay for per unit that you consume, and it's taking this same approach and applying that to software. And the one thing that is different is this is very different for banking software. Because as you know, a lot of banks are used to paying tens of millions, if not sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars up front for software that in the end might not actually end up working or fulfilling their needs. So this is actually great for the customer because it, it, it 
changes the dynamic between the customer and the vendor. Well, and that's, I think, one of the core elements that needs to change in how these are structured. Because I'd say banks are, are used to paying transaction pricing. It's just that it has monthly minimums that scale over a five-year period. So it is not transaction pricing based on usage. It's based on revenue targets from the provider. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. There's a lot of transactional transactional you know, models in financial services, but they're always are often associated with big upfront commitments. Yes. And then once the upfront commitments are there, it's very hard. The switching costs are so high that it's very difficult to actually have a real choice. And so what we're seeing and what I'm envisioning uh, is a future where banks actually have full choice because of open. APIs, and they have the ability to provide the best consumer service or business service to their end customers because they can use a product for a second, a minute, a transaction, uh, or anything, and, and effectively these vendors become real-time. And for the vendor, it's ultimately, you know, am I delivering value every day, every second? And if I'm not, then I'm probably going to get, uh, you know, subsumed. Well, and one of the biggest commitments we tend to make within financial services is a long-term commitment to what the product is supposed to be. And part of that is because I'm supposed to you know, pay over that long-term that you talked about. Something that OpenView publishes about quite a bit is this idea of product-led growth. Can you get into, you know, define for a big part of the audience, what is PLG? And then let's apply that to financial services with a couple examples about this evolutionary approach. Yeah. Absolutely. So product-led growth, uh, I have to get uh, div- give recognition to my one of my partners, Blake Bartlett, uh, who coined the term product-led growth back in 2016. And product-led growth is very simply uh, a method of delivering software where the end user is the primary, uh, or the end product rather, is the primary way to acquire, retain, and uh, you know, make customers successful. And while that sounds you know, relatively simple, if you think about software for decades and decades, it hasn't been built for the end user. It's largely been built for CIOs, for managers. If you think about Salesforce, it's something that was built for the sales manager, as opposed to for the end, the end user of the product, whoever that may be. And so examples of that within our portfolio include companies like Calendly, which you may have scheduled meetings with, Datadog, which is an infrastructure monitoring tool, uh, and one that that you know f- f- uh, foots into uh, financial services, which is Expensify. It's an expense management tool uh, that recently actually filed their S1, and is a tool that goes up and competes with the likes of Concur. So uh, if you've ever filed ex- your expenses in the past, you might know of a, of a company called Concur. It was sold in the traditional way that that many other companies were built, which was to sell into the department level manager or the the manager of a company uh, within the CFO. Uh, Expensify came along and instead of selling to the CFO, sold to the individual end user. You can download Expensify from the app store or from the website and use it yourself. And through that, uh, the company gained a ton of bottoms up or viral or product led growth adoption. And that was an incredible mechanism for it to spread virally throughout a number of companies, uh, which which it did and has been remarkably successful. And so that's an example of product-led growth applied to financial services, Uh, but there are a number of others uh, as well. Well, in 
as we unpack that part of product-led growth and this idea of value before payment, a lot of that you know, does also go back to this change of the delivery model is not, I start with the, what technology does my core have available? That determines my product set. That determines what my customers see. And it's one of the reasons that when you look at financial services, not just banks or credit unions, but even you know the modern equivalents of a chives or chime or, or a Robin Hood, that you know is part of the problem a lack of imagination of you know what does the checking account of the future look like because we're so wedded to what the checking account of the past has looked like yeah no i i i totally agree yeah and you know with product like growth it it sounds it might sound like a you know simple model with respect to how you deliver you know the the, the you know develop, deliver value before the paywall and yes that is part of it but I think what's important is that the implications for that on how you build a company uh, and how the customer experiences your product can be very different. Um, you know, for example, a lot of leading product-led growth companies, um, you know, such as Calendly and others, you know, exhibit tremendous unit economics because they don't need to hire armies of salespeople and customer success people. And in, instead they can invest that in the product, which ultimately leads to more innovation for the end customer. And so that the end customer then ultimately gets a product that keeps uh, reinforcing the best about feedback loops and product so that you know they get the, the best bang for their buck as well. Yep. So Changing gears a little bit here, I want to talk about the macro industry and environment we're in. Do you think we're in a fintech bubble right now? Oh, that is a good question. You know, I'm going to say no. Uh, while there is a ton of activity uh, in fintech recently, and you know, you can't probably go a week without seeing a new fintech unicorn or fintech IPO. I think we're still at the very, very early innings of the opportunities that that fintech can provide, and so for that reason, I think you know um, I, I liken it to if product-led growth is at inning three of nine, I think we're in inning one of financial services hmm. and the innovation that's still to come uh, from the industry at large, and uh, and so for that reason, I, I don't think it's a bubble. I think. One thing, I've been a software investor for, for over a decade now, and the, the thing that I'm seeing, uh, which is tremendously exciting, uh, is the growing intersection of financial services and software. And so, you know, I am keeping track and literally all of the older companies that you never thought would be financial services companies are all of a sudden becoming financial services companies. Uh, as an example, like HubSpot recently announced a payments feature, which you're like, this is a CRM. What are they doing like getting into financial services? Uh, whereas you might have thought that was only for banking software or other companies like that. And now I'm seeing this across the board. And so uh, I think the new technology company is becoming a financial service and the new financial service is becoming software. And so it's all becoming very gray. And so, uh, and I think that unleashes a huge amount of potential in terms of the value it can provide. So no, I don't think we're in a bubble. I think we're still in inning one of nine. Well, what do you think the second inning begins to look like? You hinted at the embedded finance element of this as you see 
tech companies becoming closer to financial services, financial services being more tech enabled. What does that next evolution look for? And what kind of big trends are you uh, looking at? I mean, I think that's it right there, right? You know, is is just that that intersection. But I think we're still so early in that in that adoption, you know. And you could look at things like um, you know, you see the big tech players, Apple, Microsoft, you Google are obviously making that. But in the future, you know, I think that's gonna happen, you know, far and wide. Ultimately, whoever owns the customer. I think has the best opportunity to be the banking and the financial service provider for that customer. One thing that I'm very excited about is just you know vertical software providers. So as we started off talking about you know things like software for construction, I mean if you think about a software vendor that provides software to plumbers or maintenance people or uh, construction companies, uh, actually those software vendors know the most about those companies than any other organization. And if you think, what is the purpose of a bank? It's to know your customer, right? Literally KYC, uh, and then provide lending relationships to them. And so those software vendors have the opportunity to become, you know, kind of the community banks catered around industry groups that, you know, harken back to like the farming and agricultural groups of like the 1800s, which is just hasn't been around. So it's it's, uh, for the last, you know, 50 years. But I, I see that as being a tremendous tr- a trend and being able to provide very localized and uh, much more applicable services than you know your bulge bracket bank from a you know uh, you know from one of the the top one hundred. Well, I mean, there's something to be said about the customer proximity, where that proximity used to be delivered because I needed to physically go into a branch. There's a proximity in the vertical SaaS world to say I understand your needs and I can develop things you know, that I wouldn't be able to get elsewhere, uh, right? That aren't meaningful. The bulge bracket is going to provide something useful, but it don't mean to you know, be diminutive to them, but it's going to become more generic, right? It's the equivalent of, do you buy, you know, a GM or do you start with a Tesla, right? And eventually they may all get theirs, you know, it seems every feature becomes mainstream at some point, but you know where that starts. So maybe that's where we're going to end up in inning three. Curious about your thoughts there. Yeah, and totally. And back to the, I, I totally agree with that, and that there, you know that's the next phase. I think also, you know, I think of it as, you know, you have all of these constituents, basically employees, customers, partners that interact with a business all of the money flows that are coming in and out of, let's say, a plumbing shop, um, you know, have the opportunity to be reinvented by that software vendor um, because they're the one that owns that primary relationship. And, uh, I, you know, and to make it very tangible, uh, I'm thinking about a very simple example that I actually was working with over the last uh, couple of weeks for with that with the, an example that I came across was a company that provided software, you know, to, uh, to to moving companies, and one of the very simple innovations that that was created uh, was that the movers were able to increase their tips significantly uh, because people didn't have to pay the tip in cash. The, the people could pay the tip with a credit card, and you know, if you're doing a cross country move for five thousand dollars. You probably don't have five, seven hundred dollars in cash laying around. But if the company does a great job and offers you the ability to, to, to pay by credit card, 
you know, maybe you don't mind adding two, three, four, five hundred dollars on top. And so not only for the end customer, but also their, their end employees who are, you know, kind of the backbone of the industry and who don't often get paid, you know, super well, uh, you know, relative to a lot of the technology jobs and others that we're seeing. This can be a huge, this type of technology can be a huge boon for them and really, you know, be a meaningful force for, you know, kind of working people who just, you know, are trying to get by. So I think it's not only great for, it's a great business, but also, you know, tremendously valuable to the end user, uh, well, which is very much in spirit, as I talked about with product like growth. And keep in mind, if you are doing a cross-country move, you probably do not know where the nearest ATM is if you're going to get cash, you know, for them, right? The, this idea of embedded in the experience, you know, element of it. I'm curious as we close this out, where do you go for your media consumption? What is kind of the go-to either people you read, books that have been impactful or you know blogs other than Breaking Banks of course. Oh, of course, Breaking Banks number 1. Um, you know, I'm I'm reading a lot of medium these days. There's there's a surprising amount of creators that uh you know just not necessarily I don't necessarily call them uh, creators, but I guess I just did use that term. But folks who are, you know, publishing really great content. I think we saw this with the whole, you know, Wall Street bets. Uh, there's very insightful analysis that's put out there by people who are uh, relatively unknown and not, you know, major media outlets. Um, you know, I'm also reading, you know, The Economist is a favorite of mine just to kind of see what's happening around the world. And then I also do, you know, have like a number of podcasts uh, from, you know, different venture, like the 20 Minute VC, uh, Acquired, uh, others that are also high on the list. Fantastic. Well, one of my favorite pieces to go to is actually open view as a creator of content and the way you leverage your, the stories and learnings from your portfolio companies. So everyone should actually go check out open views content as well. Thanks for joining Sanjeev and sharing your thoughts on where financial services is going as we're just getting, you know, into the exciting innings of the game. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend, or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.